You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. It's very important to stress that uh, um, after uh, the last emperor, Nicholas II, abdicated, there was a provisional government formed in Russia, and it was very influenced by the ideas of Tolstoy, by the ideas of nonviolent resistance. You were the head of an independent TV network. That's not something very common, as I understand it, in uh, today's Russia. We, we have a great culture and great history of, uh, of fight for freedom and human rights, and we can be proud of our civil society had some really impressive uh, victories. And finally, in, uh, in the year 1991, that was Russian people who, uh, who took over. Mikhail Zagar is a Russian journalist, writer, and filmmaker, and the founding editor-in-chief of the only Russian independent TV news channel, Doshid TV, or TV Rain. He is the author of The Empire Must Die, Russia's Revolutionary Collapse, 1900 to 1917. And he joins me on the program now. Mikhail, thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. It is always fascinating. America is always fascinated by Russia. It's a country as vast as our own. It's somewhat mysterious since the American Revolution when we sent diplomats, Francis Dana, over to see Catherine the Great for support. Thomas Jefferson called it the world power most friendly to America. During the Civil War, Lincoln praised how much Russia had supported us in the Union side, and it still fascinates us today, and of course Russia is in our politics. It's the 100-year anniversary of the Russian Revolution. You have written a very interesting book, The Empire Must Die, about an interpretation of that revolution. I wish you would talk about the common history of the Russian Revolution, now 100 years old, 1917, and how your view of that history is different. You know, as you, you've started with uh, prominent American historical figures and their, uh, their approach to Russia, I would also like to, to start with underlining some most important things uh, about how America influenced the uh, Russian Revolution and how Russian Revolution was impossible without American influence. Because in the beginning of uh, the last century, of the 20th century, a lot of prominent Russian politicians, revolutionaries, and uh, leaders of civil society were greatly influenced by American democracy. The author of the first Russian constitution, former Russian prime minister, Sergei Vite, spent a couple of months of uh, year 1905 in the state of New York, because uh, 
he, he was the head of a Russian team of negotiators um, after the, the end of the war be- between Russia and Japan. Uh, American President uh, Theodore Roosevelt was mediator du- during those negotiations. And that, that is uh, America, uh, where Prime Minister Vitte took the inspiration to come back and to propose the first version of the Russian Revolution. All the greatest uh, leaders of, um, and proponents of Russian revolutions, such as worldwide known writer Maxim Gorky, or the founder of the Party of uh, Socialist Revolutionaries, Gregory Gershuni, were traveling across the United States trying to fund, fundraise uh, and fundraising for the revolution, and some of them uh, did that um, very successfully. That was actually New York, where um, Leon Trotsky learned for the first time that the Russian Empire collapsed and that uh, the last emperor, Nicholas II, um, abdicated. And he returned to St. Petersburg from from the New York City. Uh, So the impact of uh, American uh, freedom of speech, American democracy, and um, uh, of American political situation to uh, to Russian civil society that that time was was really important and a lot of things that we knew that actually um, our our attitude to, to the history of Russian Revolution um, of uh, ni- 1917 um, all all the information most of Russians had were very were based on the traditional Soviet history, uh, different books, uh, texts written uh, during the uh, Soviet period of, uh, of our history, and they were not uh, completely precise. They, they were mostly focused on the role of Lenin, as well as uh, a lot of um, uh, texts written by non-Russian authors. They also suffer from that uh, Lenin-focused version mm-hmm. of uh, um, of the revolution history. It's always um, described as uh, the communist revolution, although uh, Lenin and communists were not the leading figures of that revolution. Actually, until until summer of 1917, it was uh, much, much different, and uh, L- Lenin was only a marginal figure in that uh, political process. He was not important. He was not even popular. Uh, Bolshevik party did not exist until uh, summer uh, 1917. Uh, on the contrary, uh, until that year, uh, the political struggle in Russia was was very um, tense. The Russian civil society was, was really very developed, and uh, there were a lot of political parties uh, that were trying hard to to achieve um, some more political influence and to to build a, str- a strong civil society, to, to, to build the social institutions that could um, could influence the, the emperor's government. Um, a lot of uh, those facts and just uh, that political process uh, is is not known by by many uh, by many historians and especially by by the general audience. Uh, in Russia and uh, outside of Russia as well. So, so my book is is much more um, a history of Russian civil society. It's not focused on uh, on. It's not the the version of the history that is written by the winners, meaning 
the communists. It's, uh, um, it's about the, um, what was really happening, what was important for those people who lived in Russia before 1917, how they perceived um, and how they judged uh, what, what was ha- happening um, in, uh, in Russia those days. Uh, talk a bit about the Russo-Japanese War and a revolution that occurred in 1905 and the World War I debacle of, of, of the Russian war effort in 1917 and the revolution there. In a lot of American history where we talk about the Russian Revolution, uh, I'm afraid it's, it's oddly enough influenced by that Soviet version. A lot of Americans just simply think, well, there was the, the Tsar was toppled, and then the Bolsheviks took over. Uh, talk more about maybe that that uh, earlier history and the run up to World War One. Yeah, uh, that's really important because not not much of us, uh, uh, especially not not many Russians, know that in the beginning of twentieth uh, century, Russia was probably one of the most culturally influential countries in the world, and probably one of the most popular culturally, because Russian literature, Russian with Tolstoy and Chekhov uh, st- still alive in the beginning of, of that century, or Russian theater, or Russian music, or Russian painters were, were really famous all, all around the world, as probably I, I might quote one of the early novels of British writer Somerset Moham, who was de- describing the young Londoner who, who was trying hard to pretend that he was Russian, uh, because that was very fashionable. And he was reading Russian writers and, and buying Russian paintings for his house. Th- that was really important that Russia was very progressive country. And th- uh, at the same time, there was a very crisis, uh, very uh, severe conflict between Russian government and Russian civil society. Because um, the Emperor Nicholas II was not the genius political strategist. Other, on the contrary, he, he was the man who sincerely believed that his destiny to be the only man responsible uh, for, for the political process in his country. He was taught by his tutors from this childhood, and he was supported by his wife, Empress Alexandra, who was also a rather stubborn woman, who uh, considered that any attempt of Russian civil society to interfere through a decision-making process is directed against her son, because that's going to be his property after he becomes the next Russian emperor. And she she was fighting like like a truly loving mother against any attempt of any opposition leader, any opposition party, with the trying and pushing for, for more reforms. At the same time, there was very important political crisis that happened right after the Russo-Japanese War in 1905 that, le- uh, that led to almost... Um, Almost the revolution. It is still called the revolution of 1905. Emperor was was nearly deposed. He was locked up in a suburb of St. Petersburg called Peterhof, mm. uh, and he could not get in touch with his own government or his own capital. Uh, there, there was a German warship that that entered the the, the Baltic Sea. It was very close to to the Russian capital. But the, the, the objective of, of German emperor and 
the German military wa was to help Emperor Nicholas II uh, to evacuate from Russia, and uh, he proposed uh, the, that uh, German troops could uh, invade Russian capital and suppress that revolution. Finally, although most of the royal family wanted to agree and wanted to wanted to use the, the proposal of German emperor, that was only the prime minister Sergei Vita, who has just returned from America, who, who had another another option in his mind. He proposed uh, the constitution, and he has written the text of of the of the new constitution that that introduced the parliament. So since the year 1906. There was uh, in, uh, another political system that, that existed in, in Russia, and um, it was much more a, a, a parliamentarian monarchy. Uh, although for, for Nicholas II, he was never he never truly believed that that was the right thing to do. He thought that that he was forced to accept the parliament. He was forced uh, by, by Prime Minister Vita. Uh, and that was the moment of, of his weakness, and he actually he thought that that he betrayed something really sacred. He really believed in uh, that that was his death uh, before the God, um, that that he was the only man who was capable and responsible uh, to take all all the political de decisions. The next decade was was really, mm, on the one hand, rather prosperous time for Russia, at the same time. Uh, that was uh, the years of of despair. Although uh, the the new pol political system was introduced, but uh, there was a decade of uh, repressions against the leader of the leaders of civil society. A lot of them had to flee the country. Uh, uh, a lot of them immigrated to Germany or Switzerland or France, or some of them to, to America. These were lavish, luxurious years of Russian history. Russia was famous in Europe not only because of art and literature and, uh, and theater, but because of uh, the way of life of Russian Grand Dukes and Grand Duchess, who were able to rent the most luxurious uh, villas, the most posh hotels all around Europe, and partying like Russians was infamous way of life for that decade. Actually, it, it reminds a bit uh, the image of Russia and the political atmosphere of Russia in the first decade of, of 21st century. I, I cannot neglect that parallel. Yeah, it seems like in telling the story of this, uh, the, the, the lead up to the Russian Revolution and a bit of the aftermath, you're hinting that there's a closeness to events in Russia today. You were the head of an independent TV network. That's not something very common, as I understand it, in uh, today's Russia. And talk a bit about the atmosphere today in terms of, say, speech, in terms of, say, differences between elites and common people. Mm, you know, in, in those terms, uh, there is no much difference between Russia and 100 years, uh, especially, uh, I would say, during the first decade of, of the 20th century and, uh, and, and Russia today, because uh, we still have a rather polarized society. We still have a lot of people who really think that 
that Russia should be a decent democratic free country and we need normal democratic institutions that could allow our country to become a stable and economically developed country. At the same time, uh, there is a lot of prejudice against that way of thinking inside Russian bureaucracy. The large part of, of Russian society is obsessed with with talking that um, Western values are uh, are not for Russia. That Russia uh, has got some traditional um, core values. That and according to those values, Russia should should be much more authoritarian than any other country. That Russia needs, mm-hmm. uh, if not a czar, but uh, Russia needs a strong leader. That's the the only way how the country could be managed. And that's, you know, uh, the, the the main value for that probably slightly larger part of, of Russian population. And especially those ideas are, are popular among Russian uh, ruling class, among Russian bureaucracy, that the main traditional value is that Russia is an empire itself. And uh, a lot of people should should be proud of Russia as a superpower, Russia as an empire. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Many times when in recent news events, when we're trying to explain or understand, say, Vladimir Putin's actions, it's been explained to us by some that some of the actions he takes is to put Russia back on the stage or that he feels that Russian pride might be offended or that America is treating him like a small person. So some of the things he's doing is to make him a big person, to make Russia a big country. And to some, I, I wonder how true it is. It, it, cause it almost seems like it's, it's, it, uh, might be a naive interpretation. What do you think about that? Mm, if we speak about, uh, about Vladimir Putin's perception and, and the, the last, uh, two or three decades of Russian history after the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, these were the most difficult decades for many Russians, especially psychologically, because after the collapse of the Soviet Union, a lot of Russian people felt some kind of deep psychological trauma. And the 90s were um, very economically uh, hard for, for our people, and especially many people felt humiliated because they, they lost everything. They, they lost their, their income, they lo- lost some high living standards, they le- lost any hope and uh, feeling of certainty. At the same time, they lost that feeling of national pride. They, they were not respected globally. That was a uh, Probably, if the, uh, the the economic situation was better, that wouldn't be felt in that way. But that was a mixture of all different feelings of uh, of being humiliated, and that's why probably 
for, for many people, feeling of national pride is still very important. From the very beginning of his uh, first presidential term, that was really uh, important objective for Vladimir Putin. When he was trying to, to make friends with his Western partners like George W. Bush or Tony Blair, uh, he was trying to, um, to feel treated as an equal partner, treated uh, with respect and uh, I must say that, that during his first presidential term, Putin was really um, probably the most pro-Western leader that Russia uh, has ever had. He was even um, proposing that Russia could join NATO. Uh, that that was unprecedented for for Russian president. But at the, but actually, those projects were not really successful. They they actually a bit contradicted the uh, the perception of American administration. For George W. Bush, Russia uh, was never uh, a great empire. He, he con- considered Russia m- much more another European country, probably something like uh, bigger Finland, uh, but not as, a, as an empire or, or a superpower. So that was a long process for, for, for Vladimir Putin when he really felt not respected the, w- the way he he wanted to be respected when he was really offended when when he learned uh, that uh, George W. Bush decided to to start Iraqi war fr- from the media, not from himself. Then his, uh, Vladimir Putin started being paranoid uh, when he w- um, when his aides uh, started um, telling him that uh, there is some kind of conspiracy and. American administration is is trying to install uh, to install the new government in in Ukraine. The, there were so-called color uh, revolutions uh, in some republics of ex-Soviet Union, and and Vladimir Putin was becoming much more and more paranoid. So to some extent, there is some true in uh, in that perception that that the the key ambition of Vladimir Putin is to become to feel that that he is really internationally important, he wants to become some kind of a member of the world. Of the world, that's a very a very popular f- uh, phrase uh, in Kremlin uh, that that Russia needs to be a stakeholder of the world, and he Vladimir Putin himself uh, wants to have like a permanent seat in that board of directors. That is, uh, he has been trying to to achieve for many years. And now it seems like he's feeling that he has finally achieved that. Yeah, it it seems like he got his favorite choice from the 2016 election that he uh, he preferred Donald Trump to win rather than Hillary Clinton. At least that's something commonly asserted here in, yeah. in the U.S. It, it definitely, definitely, if he if he was to choose uh, between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, he preferred uh, he would. He would have preferred uh, Donald Trump because, he, uh, to his mind, uh, that's the man he could deal with. But uh, at the same time, um, I must tell you that um, in in weeks before American elections, um, all the um, like mo- most of the members of of Putin's in in his circle were absolutely sure that Hillary Clinton was to to win. And they had no doubts in that, and they they already started uh, uh, preparing uh, for the future negotiations with Hillary Clinton as the new American president, and they were trying to impress her as 
than you um, had of American foreign policy. And that was rather a surprise for them when uh, it turned out that they were wrong and uh, the, the new president was going to be Donald Trump. And I should point out that as we're discussing current politics, that as you are the author of The Empire Must Die, and it's this really uh, interesting and large uh, book about Russian history. I, I, I have to mention, by the way, having read the book, I'm still finishing it because it is large and it's so interesting, that it's all these little stories, and it's broken up in, in nice little uh, sub-chapters so that you can almost like pick up at different points and read about very interesting characters. But you're also the author of All the Kremlin's Men, which is a story about the, the journalism about the Vladimir Putin and the people around him. So I think you're, you're well qualified, uh, to discuss, to discuss what's going on. In other words, you, you had many conversations with people that work with Putin and you have many sources over many years. Yeah, that, that, that was true. Actually, I spent, uh, I spent seven years, uh, writing All the Kremlin's Men. I was trying to um, to interview as many um, people from Putin's inner circle, um, or or Russian oligarchs, or members of Russian parliament, or Russian government, as I could. Most of those interviews were off the record interviews, but um, that's even better uh, better way to to make them uh, be more sincere. So I I, I really think that that. Uh, um, I still have some um, some possibility to understand what people from Putin's inner circle are, are thinking. At the same time, I I must tell you that um, it seems to me that that Putin's role, Putin's personal um, role in in Russia and in uh, in America as well, is a bit exaggerated. He he is a bit idealized by American media because usually mm -hmm. he's portrayed as a uh, genius mastermind of the glo global conspiracy uh, right. uh, as the master of puppets who controls the world and who, who and who can um, impose uh, uh, his own will to American people and uh, and implant his um, his hand-picked candidate as the new American president. That's that that does not look uh, reasonable for me. Uh, Putin is not a strategic player. He is much more um, a tactical player. He much more, um, he, he's often, um, often reacting to what's happening. He, uh, he replies to the circumstances. He always changes his plans. Uh, Russian leadership is much more chaotic than, uh, than it, uh, that, than it's supposed to be and, and the, uh, than it's uh, described in, in many American media. Go back a bit uh, to the history of the Russian Revolution and the subject of your book, The Empire Must Die, and because you really describe in the book, the whole idea of the book is there's, there was this moment where perhaps Russia could have had more democracy and a figure that Americans aren't familiar with, I'm sure Russians are, but Americans aren't familiar enough with, would be Alexander Kerensky. Um, would it be appropriate to talk a bit about him? Uh, definitely, but not only about him. You know, um, I, I cannot agree uh, with you when, when, when you're saying that Russians probably know about that. Unfortunately, Russians don't know about that. Uh, that's that's oh. a stereotype uh, shared by, by many Russians that... Uh, ironically, uh, there was Nicholas II, and then 
Bolsheviks came and took the power. The the whole period of Russian history from let's say February 1917 till October 1917 is missing. It has never been uh, uh, discussed in history textbooks, especially because they were written in a way to please Lenin and Communist Party. That's important. That's very important to stress that uh, um, after uh, the last emperor Nicholas II abdicated, there was a provisional government formed in Russia, and it was very influenced by the ideas of Tolstoy, by the ideas of nonviolent resistance. The first prime minister of Russian Republic was the man uh, whose name was uh, Georgi Lvov, or George Lvov, uh, something like Russian George Washington. Unfortunately, he was not running the country for that long. He resigned uh, in, in July 1917, but he, he was probably the most democratic leader Russia has ever had, um, and the most, um, the most decent man. Uh, under his leadership, Russia became the historically uh, most progressive country for that time. Russia was the first country in the world to abolish death penalty. Russia was the first country in Europe to uh, to give women um, voting rights. And uh, and actually, the first months after February Revolution were really the months of democratic euphoria for for Russian civil society. Unfortunately. A lot of problems were not were not uh, say um, solved. The economic situation was really um, uh, was troublesome. Um, there was a huge economic crisis, and the war was still going on. And in, in another important political leader you've just mentioned, Alexander Kerensky, who uh, who first. Uh, was the, the Minister of Justice in the provisional government, then uh, became the, the second Prime Minister of Russian Republic. And he is a very good speaker, as uh, a very popular politician. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Did his best to persuade the army to 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 continue the the offensive. That that was his promise to the allies, and actually that um, uh, offensive of Russian army against the German and Austrian troops initially was very uh, very successful, but uh, that was pr- probably the last thing that Russian provisional government could uh, could do because uh, it ended up with with a lot of soldiers deserting and leaving the, their positions uh, then uh, the the very successful offensive of German army followed uh, and actually that 
June and July of, of 1917 were the beginning of the end of uh, uh, Russian Dem Democratic Republic. Uh, because there was a man whose name was Vladimir Lenin, and he was no fa famous politician b before that. He was not uh, an influential mm. leader. His, uh, he, uh, he could be called like an infant rebel uh, of, uh, of Russian uh, revolutionary parties because he was always uh, quarreling with, with his comrades. He was always very unsatisfied and unhappy with everything happening. And he, he was probably the only politician who was not happy because of the revolution of February 1917. He, he was the only man to demand the new revolution, to, uh, to demand the, to, to overthrow the new de democratic government, because he, he thought that it did not fit uh, the Mar Marxist uh, standards. Initially, he was the only one to share this vision, but after all those uh, uh, economic and military problems, after different uh, corruption scandals, uh, after uh, uh, the government was not quick enough to, uh, to implement the necessary reforms, the number of um, followers of Lenin, uh, especially among the marginal parts of, of Russian society, uh, especially among working class or soldiers deserting from the army were growing and growing. And that is important that, that Lenin was the only pacifist, the, the only well-known uh, politician who was uh, demanding to stop the war. I mean, the war was popular generally. The war uh, or anti-German sentiment was popular in Russia, was it not? You know, it was, it was popular in the beginning. By 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 the year 1917, most of the society was was tired of that war, but still a lot of people thought that that was necessary to end the war and to win the war. That defeated Russia could not be a, a proper democratic country. That that Russia should should win that that war, and after that, a lot of things are going to be much easier. So, uh, unfortunately, that person Vladimir Lenin who was criticizing every step of the provisional government, uh, was, um, was clever enough to mobilize the most mar marginal people in the in Russian capital. He, he was so, although not, not an experienced politician before that, he was a populist and he managed to organize a coup that we know as the October Revolution. And his ideas must have attracted support from from people, from the people on the ground. Uh, the idea of con the, the the concept the concept of communism uh, must have been attractive for some of the common people who were coming back from war or or or, or seeing uh, you know their 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 food supplies empty. Yeah, you know. Um... A lot of uh, his followers didn't know what what communism was like, but uh, um, he, he, um, his major slogans w were to stop the war and uh, to to give ever all the plants and factories to the workers and to give all the land uh, to the peasants. Um, as we know, none of those uh, promises were uh, were fulfilled because. Uh, uh, immediately after he announced that that he, he was going to stop the war, uh, the war <laughs> did not stop. <laughs> Otherwise, uh, there was a, a huge civil war that ended uh, only in 1922. Uh, uh, the peasants did not get any land. There was a, 
uh, a lot of purges and um, and repressions against the peasants, and um, there were so-called kolkhozes uh, organized all across Russia. And the same happened with with the factories and and plants. They uh, they after the revolution uh, belonged to the state, but not to the workers. This could be uh, my own bias, my American bias in viewing Russian history. But there's so many dark moments. There's the the the, the 1905 revolution. There's the 1917 revolution. The World War One. An experience, uh, the experience of communism over the 70 years of leaders that don't seem to have people's interest at heart and difficulty with democracy and throughout a long period. But is that view that, that Russian history is perhaps very dark? Uh, is, is it justified? Um, what's it like to be Russian in, in, in reality? Mm. You know, I think that that's that's still a prejudice and uh, rather mm. um, rather offensive prejudice. Probably, uh, I don't think that that most of Russians uh, would be happy to hear that. Um, on the contrary, um, you know, we unfortunately have have a history uh, focused on on Russian state, not on Russian civil society, and even more, uh, the traditional version of uh, of Russian history is focused on Russian rulers. It tells us that Russia has always been a great empire and uh, we must be proud of its strength. But at the same time, uh, if, we, if we might focus on Russian society, for, for, for many centuries of our history, we, we, we had a great culture and great Russian uh, society and a lot of people throughout all of our history who were struggling for their freedoms, uh, for the freedom of uh, speech, for the freedom of uh, choice, for the freedom of religion. I must mention probably uh, Leo Tolstoy, who, who is one of the most well-known writers uh, globally, but not many people know that, that he was not only uh, a novelist, but also a political leader, a philosopher, and like a spiritual leader of the Russian opposition. And uh, that were his ideas who inspired um, Mahatma Gandhi and then Martin Luther King. So that's, that's also very important um, for, for many Russians that, that we, we have a great culture and great history of, uh, of fight for freedom and human rights. And we can be proud of that as well. We know that our civil society had some really impressive uh, victories. And finally, in, uh, in the year 1991, that was Russian people who, uh, who took over. Uh, the Cold War ended not because uh, Americans won uh, that war. It was, uh, it was a victory of Russian people. That were Russian people who defeated the totalitarianism, that uh, that was Russian people who who won when the, uh, there was an attempt of of coup of old Soviet elite in August of 1991, and and that attempt was defeated by by huge protest rallies in Moscow and Saint Petersburg. So, so that was a, a huge victory of Russian people that wanted their country to be a free country, and and I I will never agree that that Russia is that Russia has got some darker history than, than any other country in the world. 
Uh, I will never agree with that prejudice that that is shared by some Russians, mm-hmm. even that, that Russia is not a country that can be democratic and free. I will never agree that, that Russia's destiny is to be a monarchy, uh, an empire or a dictatorship. And at least uh, we've got one proof for that, and that is our history. Even during the Soviet period, there was a lot of writing and a lot of literature and a lot of expression. It's quite a rich literature that's, uh, I think, always been a hallmark of, of Russia. It's a tremendous contribution to the culture to those who are willing to open the box and look at it. <laughs> yeah, def- de- uh, definitely. And... Um... Let's say, um, if we look um, to the uh, not to the history that that happened 100 years ago, but what happened um, 50 years ago in uh, in the year 1968, that was a crucial year for uh, for American history and for for Soviet history as well. Approximately the same time when Martin Luther King was assassinated. Uh, academician Andrei Sakharov started his his activity as a champion of of human rights and the, one of the greatest proponents of of human rights in the world. At the same time, um, although there was official censorship in the Soviet Union, but um, the the new and very important underground media was established the same year. It was called Chronicle of Current Affairs. It was. Uh, tape written by, by ordinary people, but the number of copies of that illegal newspaper was, was tremendous. And let's say when there the was peak of, um, of, of anti-war protests here in America during the, the National Democratic Convention in Chicago in, in August ni- 1968, at the same time, there was a very historical demonstration against Soviet invasion in Prague. And uh, eight people participated in that historic demonstration on the Red Square protesting against the Soviet invasion in Czechoslovakia. That, that, that's a very important coincidence that, that that happened the same day when the demonstrations in Chicago were, were booming. So we, we also have, have very... like. I must say that, uh, there, that there are very interesting parallels um, in that terms b- between Russian and American history. And I've been speaking with the author of The Empire Must Die, Mikhail Zagar, Russia's Revolutionary Collapse, 1900 to 1917. Thanks for coming on the program. I always ask guests this, is there something else that we didn't get to that you think is an important point? Um, I, I think that would be rather rather interesting for, for your listeners to read the book that, that we've been discussing because uh, I, w- I was writing it not for those who love history. The story itself is very interesting and uh, it's very important to... Uh, it's, it's, it's my attempt to, to help people to get to know those important personalities that lived um, 100 years ago. And uh, I'm always saying that history is some kind of rehearsal of the present. And that's the only way for us to to try to get prepared for for the troubles that are awaiting us in the future. 
Great. And uh, we do thank you for coming on the program today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I've been speaking with Mikhail Zigar, the author of The Empire Must Die, Russia's Revolutionary Collapse, 1900 to 1917. I want to thank you for listening. The premium podcast is available at www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpoliticspremium.com. Consider signing up. It can be as little as $2 a month. Help support the show. And also, you'll get bonus episodes. Hello all, Eric Rivenis with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers and have a safe tomorrow.